The following message is from Ridgewood Church in Greer, South Carolina. For more information, visit RidgewoodGreer.com. Now today we are landing the plane on a teaching series we began several Sundays ago. A series called, I Will Build My, uh, excuse me, The Church That Jesus Builds, which is rooted in Matthew 16, 18, where Jesus says, I will build my church. Now, typically what we like to do is walk through books of the Bible. We, we have been in Acts for a good part of this year. Uh, but when we moved into these facilities, we thought it would be helpful to speak directly to issues, you know, about church, about being the church, and about what the New Testament has to say about being the church. And so, again, from Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church, we've taken every phrase from that sentence and just paused on it for a Sunday. I will build my church. What does it mean that Christ will build his church? I will build my church. What does it mean that Christ will build his church? We're going to land the plane today on I will build my church. Church. I will build my church. Now, the word for church comes from the Greek word ekklesia, which is all over the New Testament. In fact, used more than 100 times in the New Testament, ekklesia, which means something like assembly or gathering. In the Greek Old Testament, we see that word at play very frequently as well, oftentimes used to describe the gathering of the saints, the, the people of Israel together in the presence of the Lord. Jesus says, I'm going to build my assembly. I'm going to build my gathering. That there's a group of people that Jesus will build and assemble and gather together. The question is, who is that assembly? Who are those that are assembling? When Jesus talks about building this assembly, building this gathering, building this church, who are those that Jesus is speaking about? Well, in that Matthew 16 passage, it comes immediately after Peter professes the lordship of Jesus. And so Jesus is saying that he's going to make a people out of those who make that profession. Those who confess with Peter that Jesus is indeed the Messiah and, and he is Lord, that Jesus is going to gather a people who are a people of that profession. Now, there's two ways that we can speak about the church. And if you have ever been to our Discovering Ridgewood class, you remember talking about this very thing. There's two ways that we can speak about the church. There's the Invisible Universal Church, the capital C Church, which is actually how it's used in Matthew 16, to some extent in our passage that we're going to look at here in just a few moments today. The church that is the church across all times and all places and all ages. The church that is invisible but is, is, is made up of all of those Christians everywhere who have professed that Christ is Lord. All of those who have been saved. That is the invisible church, the, the universal church. But in the New Testament, even though it is occasionally spoken of in these kind of big capital C terms, the church is never a vague abstraction. In fact, in the New Testament, what we see over and over again is that the church is almost, the, the word church is almost always used to describe a visible local church, a specific iteration or instantiation, we might say, of the Big C church, local churches. You think about the church at Corinth, the church at Laodicea, the church at Antioch, Ridgewood Church, Greer First Baptist Church, Resurrection Church. Village Anglican Church, Presbyterian Church, these local instantiations of the universal Big C Church. What we've said in this series, the way that we speak about the local church, this is how we define it, is that the local church is a group of Christians who regularly gather or assemble to preach the gospel, observe the ordinances, and live together as family. The local church is a group of Christians who regularly gather to preach the gospel, in other words, 
to, to confess together that Jesus is Lord, to observe the ordinances, baptism in the Lord's Supper, the symbols and practices that reinforce that Jesus is Lord, and live together as family, to be a people who live under his lordship together. So when we talk about the church, when the New Testament talks about the church, it's our conviction that it's primarily in this way, though sometimes it does talk about the church in the big C way. It's primarily talking about local churches. And what we'll see in our passage that we're going to read in just a few moments, 1 Corinthians 12, is, is I think a really compelling snapshot into what the church is to be. A really compelling snapshot as to what the local church is to be, that the way it's intended by God to be flavored, we might say. Now, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 12, as I've already mentioned. Um, I don't know what page it is in the Blue Bibles, so my bad for not getting that sooner. But you can find a table of contents in the front, and it'll help you find 1 Corinthians if you aren't exactly sure where to find that. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Then we're going to begin in verse 1 in just a moment. Now, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians is a letter written by an early Christian missionary and theologian, a guy named the Apostle Paul. He planted a church in Corinth because of its strategic importance. So Corinth was this port city, it was really big, and it was really pagan, actually. Paul evangelizes, the spirit moves, the word takes root, people believe, and God establishes a church in this city. And if it wasn't for 1 Corinthians, that would seem all idyllic and stuff. But when we read through 1 Corinthians, we realize that that church, like every other church, is not a perfect church, that it actually has bukus of issues. There's sin that needs to be disciplined. We think about 1 Corinthians chapter 5. There's temptations back into pagan forms of worship. There's disorder in the worship gatherings. There's disunity around the Lord's Supper, where the wealthy people are gobbling up all the Lord's Supper, and so the day workers, day laborers, can't have access to it. There's questions regarding eating food from pagan worship. There's just a, a lot of things that Paul has to deal with in this letter. And one major issue that's addressed in our chapter here today is the use of spiritual gifts. The issue seems to be that the church at Corinth, that, that folks with one set of gifts are pitting themselves against folks with other types of gifts. And in fact, are, are looking down on those people that have the quote-unquote lesser gifts. It becomes a source of strife and envy and disunity, and you, you can imagine that when we start like, looking down our nose at the people who make up the church with us, that's going to cause issues. We understand the human heart, even in professing Christians, the human heart has a tendency to get sideways, and disunity is not difficult. Paul wants to put all of that to rest, beginning in 1 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. And so, Paul begins by saying, I'm going to address spiritual gifts. But then he has this really interesting comment where he says that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, silent idols, like gods and, and false gods that weren't real. In fact, they were mute. And then he, he kind of has this thing in verse 3 where he says, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. So you kind of have this, the, the idols are mute. But then he goes on to say that those who profess Christ are speaking. And they're speaking in step with the Holy Spirit about Christ and his Lordship. And I think what we can kind of piece together, and I think what Paul is subtly getting at here is that our God is a speaking God, and one of the ways that we see our speaking God in contrast to the mute idols, one of the ways we see him speak is in our common profession, our profession that Jesus is Lord. Verse 4, 
Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. All right, so again, if there's conflict about the Spirit, if you've got the varsity Spirit gifted people and the JV and the C team Spirit gifted people, and there's strife that's sort of developed between them, Paul wants to, to cut that off of the root. He's saying all of those gifts come from one gift, one capital G gift, the Spirit. We've all been given the same Spirit. We've all been given the same measure, the same dose, the same, our, our tanks are filled to the same threshold. We've all been given the same Spirit, and the Spirit distingu- or, or, or distributes rather gifts according to His sovereign design. Verse 7, to each is, is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Right, so in, in your bullets, in the little blank there, is that we begin here, that there's, there's one Spirit and many gifts. In fact, one way that we could talk about this is that there is one gift, which is the Spirit, which then distributes lowercase, lowercase j. G, G, yeah, not J, G, gifts. Verse 8. For to no one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, excuse me, for to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So Paul begins to lift, list off these examples of these gifts that have been given to the Corinthians. And he says, they've all been given the one Spirit and the Spirit decides who and how to gift each individual Christian. And now, if you notice, the gifts that Paul lists here are the Spicier New Testament gifts, right? The charismatic gifts, we might say. Verse 8, wisdom, utterances, healing, miracles, tongues. Now, I mentioned that we've been studying through the book of Acts. And and one unavoidable question in the book of Acts, and, and really, as you read through the New Testament, is what do we do with passages like this that talk about the charismatic gifts? It seems very clearly like there was some sort of regular use and operation of these gifts happening in the New Testament, and then maybe we look around and maybe those spicier gifts aren't quite as present in our gatherings. What do we make of that? Well, as we've studied the Acts, what we've said is that in, in, in our estimation, the, the, the best way to understand this is that the charismatic gifts seem just historically and seem based on the witness of the New Testament to clump around the inbreaking of the gospel. They accompany places where the gospel is breaking through for the first time. And, and it, something I think about is, we have this, all of the moisture that our furnace and, and, and uh, air conditioning unit produces, it's, it's kind of pumped up out of our house. And so we have this little PVC pipe that comes out of the back of our house in the back of our, like by our walkway. And right around that spout where all of the water comes out and I guess all the juicy nutrients, there's just a, a ton of really thick grass. And then as the, kind of the further you get out from that, the grass is a little more normal. But it's really kind of thick and clumped right there. That's almost the image that, that I think the New Testament gives us for how we're to think about the charismatic gifts, that there's a kind of, kind of clumping of these gifts around the places where the gospel is being poured out or where the gospel is, is breaking in for the first time. So the specifics here are best, I think, in Corinthians 12, to be understood as being restricted to this particular moment in history, that this is not necessarily intended to be the normal operations of the church. Though, huge caveat, 
God does what God wants to do, right? Like the, the point of this passage seems to be that the Spirit gifts as He chooses. And so though maybe these aren't to be the normative practices of a local church gathering, maybe God chooses for that to be a, a practice for Maybe God chooses to bless a church in that way. Regardless, Paul's point remains here. That the Spirit is the gift that every Christian receives. And that the Spirit sovereignly gifts each of us. There's one Spirit, many gifts. So we're not to think of any gift as, as more special because all of it comes from the same fountain at the end of the day. And all of us are gifted for the common good of the church. In fact, Paul offers a very similar encouragement in Romans 12 where he, he uses some of the more maybe mundane gifts of the Spirit, we might say. You don't have to turn there. I'll, I'll read this. This comes from Romans 12, starting verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith, if service, in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Paul makes the same case, this makes the same point about not allowing the way the Spirit gifts us to cause division because he wants us to recognize that we are one. Paul does something similar in Ephesians 4 where he talks about the Lord Jesus ascended so that he could send good gifts, so that he could send his Spirit, which then gives the gifts and in Ephesians 4, the gifts are apostles and prophets and shepherds and teachers. And so let's ask ourselves, just kind of surface for a second in light of this passage. If the church is something alive and spirit gifted to be built up by the spirit through the gifts that he gives, I mean, it's so much more than a club and it's so much more than a, a social get together. It's so much more than a thing that we come to receive, you know, religious goods for the week. If the church is spirit-filled, the question is, how do I serve? In what ways has the spirit gifted me to serve and enrich Christ's body? How have you received those gifts? How have you deployed those gifts? Are those gifts a source of division? Or do we receive them with gratitude to use for the common good? Watch what Paul says next, verse 12. He pivots into this really brilliant image of the church that I think we forget is brilliant because of how familiar we are with it. Verse 12. Just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Paul pivots to this image of the body where he says that we are one body, we, we, we are a part of one body, and the body consists of many members. Scriptures tell us that Christ will build and has built his church, that the Father sends the Son to share what belongs to the Son. We were made in God's image, we were made for God, but in our sin, the first parents, the first man and woman, and us, right in line with them, were cut off by our sin, and we were deserving of judgment. But God is moved by compassion to send Jesus to us. Jesus takes on flesh and he lives in perfect obedience to the Father. And then he offers us salvation. He offers us to be reconciled to the Father and even invites us to know the Father as he knows the Father. If only 
we would believe. And the scriptures tell us that when we, are, when we believe by the Spirit, we are united to Christ, and we receive all that he has, and we are made into Christ's people. In fact, Paul goes so far as to say that we are made into one new man, a people made up of Jews, Gentiles, slaves, free, men and women, making up one body, which is Christ. In Ephesians 1.23, there's this really difficult phrase to sort of make out. It says that Christ is the head of the church so that he might fill all in all. seems what Paul is saying is that there, there is some level of bringing to completion of Christ's own body that, that happens when we place our faith in Jesus and are incorporated into him. When we believe on Christ, we become one new man. We make up one body. And to use our categories from earlier, I think what Paul's saying here, he's talking about here, is the universal church. That all Christians everywhere make up the one body of Christ. But as we've said, what's important to keep in mind is that the way that this body is made tangible and concrete is through local churches. Local bodies. And so I think as we read this passage and we kind of continue to move through it, I think there's a couple of implications, points of application for us here about what it means to be Christ's body and what it means to be Christ's body specifically here. And the first implication is simply this. Local churches are made up of Christians. Local churches are made up of Christians. So if I were to ask you, who does the body consist of? Talking about Christ's body, who does the body consist of? You'd say, well, Christians, because chapter 12, verse 13, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews, Greeks, slaves, free, and we're all made to drink of one spirit. The people who have received the Spirit have been baptized into Christ. That's who makes up the body, the church, Big C Church. And if the Big C Church is made visible in local churches, who then should make up local churches? Local churches, the expressions of the one body, who should make up local churches? Now, I, I grew up in church, and I realize that's not the case for all of you who are in this room. But the situation of the church that I grew up in was there were thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people that made up the church roster. You had this membership roster, and there were all sorts of names all on that roster. You know, maybe 300 attendants on a Sunday. But there were untold members who were listed as members of this particular church. Some of these folks had walked away from the faith years ago. Some of these folks had made a decision at you know, five years old and were baptized at VBS, and they had never been back since. But they were still on the membership roster of the church. One of our convictions as Ridgewood Church is that the local church is one expression of the body of Christ. And because only Christians are a part of the one body, that means that only Christians make up a local body. Who should make up local churches? The answer is people who have received the Spirit and been baptized into Christ. And so as a local church, we have a duty to, to consist only of those who profess faith. And so that means if someone falls away, if someone on our membership roster falls away or recants their faith, if someone professes faith once but shows a continual lack of fruit that indicates they aren't a Christian, well, we have a duty to remove them from the roster and make them a target of evangelism. Because by their fruit, they've demonstrated they aren't part of Christ's body. Right? So the first implication of, of Paul's metaphor here is that the local church is made up of Christians. Verse 14. For the one body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would, make it, that would not make it any less a part of the body. 
I love what Paul says here. Forget how brilliant this is again, but we're so used to the membership language because of Costco or whatever. We forget how incredibly helpful this is. Membership is language of anatomy and biology to describe the members of the body. And he says to these Christians, like these body parts, we aren't, we aren't these atomized, hermetically sealed individuals. In fact, we aren't, aren't ours at all. We belong to Christ's body. He says if the hand or the eye or the ear just decided that it was going to tap out, it's like, well, too bad, because you are necessarily a part of the body, whether you like it or not. So I think a second implication for, here, for us here in regards to being the local church is that, well, every Christian should be a part of a local church. Every Christian should be a part of a local church. Not to get gross. It's always great when you begin a sentence like, what's he going to say? Where's he going to go with this? A churchless Christian is like a severed limb. Like, what does a severed hand do after being severed? It decays. It has no blood flow. Unless it's the thing from Adam's family. Other than that, it's gross because it's not the way it's supposed to be. It's cut off from the rest of the body. So why belong to a local church? It's because there's a givenness there. Christian, you are a member of Christ's body. Each of us are a part inescapably so, of Christ's body, whether we like it or not. If we're Christians, we are a part of the body and individually members of it. Therefore, we need to be a part of a specific local church family because there's no such thing as a severed limb Christian, at least one that isn't decaying. Every Christian should be a part of a local church. Another analogy that I've heard used here is like, what's the difference between a bag of marbles and a bag of grapes? Think about a bag of marbles. You just have these isolated individual units that happen to be in this bag together but have no connection otherwise. It tends to be how we think about the church. We roll in. We speak to as few people as possible. If we speak, we keep them at arm's length with the most surface-level answers we can muster. Our singing is about our personal experience of worship with no regard for who's around us. There's really, there, there's really no connection with the people that surround us. There's as much connection as one marble has with another, incidentally in the same container. You contrast that with a bag of grapes, tethered together, literally so, drawing from the same source of life and nutrients. How much more with the image of the body? How much more connection? How much more vital is the connection? How much, how much more are we inescapably a part of one another if Paul is right that we make up Christ's body? There is no such thing as individual Christian units in the sense that the church is an addendum or an optional add-on, as if it's the container to which we're obligated to be a part of for an hour a week. Now, the Bible has so much bigger of a vision for what it means to be the church than that. Verse 17. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. The third implication is this, that the local church needs our gifts. The, 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 the body is incomplete without Christians deploying their gifts. Maybe you've heard it said again and again that you need the body, that you need to be a part of the church. But you ever thought that the church also needs you? I recognize that being a part of a church is hard. It's difficult to be present and engaged. 
But have you ever considered that one reason you should be present and engaged is you have things to offer your brothers and sisters? I was listening to a sermon that John Hyatt, he was a, a former pastoral resident of ours that he gave several years ago on singing. And I was just really encouraged by this moment in the sermon where he talked about in Colossians chapter 3 and Ephesians chapter 4, when Paul tells us to sing, he says we're to sing to God and we're to sing to one another. And he said there's a particular, particular kind of like ministry that takes place when we look around the room and we see who we're singing with. So we, we see the person whose body is failing and we see them singing, in Christ I find my hope in life and death. We see the person who is weak and who is struggling and who is, you know, having a crisis of faith, but they sing, this I believe, I believe in God the Father. And we know that they're singing from a place of, I want to want to want to want to believe. How does that minister? One of the reasons that we are a part of a local church is because God has gifted us and and invited us to, to give ourselves over to a body for the sake of the body. The church needs you. I mean... To bow out from being part of a local church is to rob the body of good gifts. It's to hog the gifts the Spirit has given you. If the eyes jump ship, you'd rob the body of sight. The local church needs your gifts. By covenanting and locking into a body, by refusing to do so, you're robbing any one church of really being able to benefit from what you bring to the table. So Paul says this passage. Verse 22. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on, those parts, uh, and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unrepresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there, be me- there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for another." Paul recognizes that we are different and that the Spirit gifts us differently and that we contribute differently, both weak and strong. And he draws from common experience about understanding the parts of our body that need greater modesty. He goes so far as to say that the weaker parts are indispensable, and in the same way that those parts we typically think of as shameful are treated with reverence in terms of how we clothe ourselves, those who we might consider weaker are actually celebrated as a part of the church. Verse 24, God has so composed the body that all are given honor. One helpful way that I've heard the church describe is that we are an embassy of the kingdom. That there's a coming kingdom yet to come. Christ's kingdom in its fullness is on its way towards us. But in the meantime, he set up these embassies of the kingdom, these places where his kingdom manifests itself in the present. And I think about this passage that In this passage, what Paul is calling us to is to be a a people of the king who washes feet. A kingdom, a people of the kingdom of the king who offers his life as a ransom for many. Who considers others more important than himself. Takes on the form of a servant, even taking, being obedient to the point of death on a cross. And so rather than be discontent with the gifts that God has given us, rather than be grumpy about the way that the spirit has gifted us, we're called to so much more than that. We are called to use our gifts to create harmony, unity and diversity. One way many Christians, Paul himself in Romans 15, illustrates this is by talking about music. I love music. I don't understand music. Music makes no sense to me. I don't understand how we can can hit a series of notes that makes us cry, and it makes all of us cry, those same series of notes. It's amazing. But if you're familiar with a chord or a triad, 
It's three notes that are played simultaneously, three different notes that are played simultaneously, and somehow they work together to create something so much more powerful than the individual note. There's a kind of beautiful unity and diversity. In verse 24, Paul says that God has composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. The fourth implication is that the local church's unity and diversity expresses itself in care. Verse 26. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. I remember when I was in high school one summer, I was playing beach volleyball at our family beach trip. And I was playing with a guy named Kent, and me and Kent were playing against my brother and a guy named Kyle. And Kent and I were running together to hit this, to serve this ball back. And as we were running, he called it and said he was going to return the, the serve. And I, I sort of held up. Uh, but I didn't hold up in time because my right pinky toe collided at a perfect angle with Kent's shin. So if you can imagine that, we're running at the same speed, and I, I try and stop, but my pinky toe hits Kent right in the shin. Again, not to be gross, but it was completely broken and rainbow-colored and purple and green and pointing the wrong direction. The poor little guy, that poor right toe. <laughs> and the days and weeks that followed, I don't know if you've ever had something like that, and the days and weeks that followed, I could not function. It was like... Could, could there be a more, like, minuscule part of the body? The pinky, I mean, it's that big. It happened to also look like that. But, but I could not function because of the injury that had happened to this pinky toe. This itty little bitty guy, it's like, where does he get off just dominating my attention like that? And it was, it was weeks and months. But Paul says, if, if one member suffers, all suffer. Because it's a body. If one member is honored, all rejoice together because it's a body. Instead of disharmony and disunity, that's how we're to be. Instead of resentment towards our brothers and sisters, we are to be about our brothers and sisters, celebrating and weeping, rejoicing with those brothers and sisters because we're a body. Verse 31, Paul talks about earnestly desiring the higher gifts. That's, it's a challenging scripture. But what he says is, I will show you still a more excellent way and you know what he talks about in chapter 13? Love. Love. That is the call of the Christian body. This is how Paul says it again, Romans 12. Just have to read this. Romans 12, just listen, verse 9. Paul says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another in brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. 
Jesus intends to build a people who live that. That is the local church. And it's like, what else could the God of the gospel create? What other kind of people could the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ create? Isn't this exactly the kind of community that we would, we would expect to come downstream from the God who has revealed himself in the face of Jesus Christ? It's just a couple of questions for us to consider. First, in what ways have you seen the church operate as a body, where each part nourishes and contributes to the whole? How have you seen that in your life? Or your time at Ridgewood, how have you seen the body be the body? I know one elephant in the room, anytime you talk about the church and about the richness of the church, is that some of us have had bad experiences. In fact, I know I have wept with some of you over some of the things that you have experienced, and understandably, you were gun shy. But I would say that this is an invitation. It is an invitation to try it. To see what the scripture says here, to see these, this image of the body, and it's an invitation to see by faith if it can indeed work itself out in this way. Not to find the perfect church, to be clear, but to see that the answer to a bad experience is a good one, and that, that the Lord Jesus is going to put together and build communities that are flavored like this. A second question for us to consider is just, how does envy and resentment stand in the way of using our gifts and flourishing as a part of a body? Are we jealous of other people's gifts, spiritual gifts or otherwise for that matter? Are we envious of their house, their kids, their spouse, their looks, fill in the blank? Is there resentment that we need to repent of? How can we learn to say your joys, my joys, your sorrows, my sorrows? And third question is just this. Is your relationship to the church any different than your relationship to Costco? That question is not original to me, and I loved how it was framed. It's interesting that membership is used there at Costco, right? And it's like, are you a part of the Costco? I'm sure you get the email bodies, as, uh, the, the emails rather that say, as a valued member of the Costco family or whatever. But is your relationship to church different? Are you, are you invested? Do you give your time and your attention? Is there proximity? Do you suffer and weep and rejoice with those who make up the body? Is your relationship to church any different than your relationship to Costco? I'm going to go ahead and invite the band back up. Um, one, one thing that we're going to try and practice doing is having the band come up at this time so that they're not transitioning while we're praying. I'm going to invite the band to come back up. But one thing I just want us to think about is how the church and the beautiful imagery here in this passage isn't about the church, ultimately. It's ultimately about Christ, who is our head. The church is about Jesus. And the call for the church is to make Jesus known. And one of the ways that we make him known and live in step with his spirit is by living in harmony with one another, by considering others as more important than ourselves and laying down our lives for our brothers and sisters in Christ. May Ridgewood be a church that does exactly that to the glory of the Lord Jesus for the sake of making him known. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that the things that were read in Corinthians 12 and in, and in Romans 12 and Ephesians 4, these passages that have been referenced, we pray that you would make that true and more true of our church family. 
We pray that you would knit us together in love, that you would help us to identify how and where the Spirit has gifted us, that we would be eager to deploy those gifts for the sake of our family, that we would be eager to suffer and rejoice together to bear burdens with one another. God, I also pray for people who are in this room who just cannot wrap their brains around the things that have been said, who their experience of church is is one where they have only skepticism and uh, bitterness, and understandably so in some cases. But God, we pray that you would help them to see from from your word and and even time at Ridgewood that there is is a better way, a a, a way characterized by love and by self-giving sacrifice and by grace pray that you'd make us a community that embodies all of those traits of the Lord Jesus and that you would use us to help nurture our wounded friends back to health. God, I can't help but think of our kids, the many who are in this room, and I pray, and I pray this often, and I pray it again, that our kids would one day believe in you and would one day devote themselves to your church, not in spite of Ridgewood, but because of Ridgewood and because of what your spirit is doing here. Not, because, uh, not, not in spite of their parents, but because of their parents. God, I pray, pray for these little ones. Lord Jesus, we thank you again for loving us and we pray that your grace be manifest through us in the way that we serve one another. We pray this in Christ's name.